I think in all of scripture, there is no more thankless role than that of the prophet. It's true that we can think of many inspiring passages of scripture that come from the prophetic books, but upon close inspection, these people were commissioned by God, convicted, we might say, to speak words that were hard to hear and even harder to accept. Let's just consider a few examples. Isaiah's words of encouragement, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, or the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, these messages are counterbalanced by the message of judgment that he speaks as well. No one and no group escapes the searing evaluation of corruption and injustice and greed. The prediction of invasions by Assyrian forces, the accusation that Israel's own sinfulness has brought on their demise, these would not have been welcome words. The most famous passage from the prophet Micah is probably this section from the sixth chapter. You have been told, O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, only to do justice and to love goodness and to walk humbly with your God. It offers a picturesque scene and gives a simple set of instructions, right? But these verses come only after almost six chapters of accusations against Israel, written in the style of a long and arduous trial before a just but stern judge who will not let Israel off the hook for abandoning the covenant. The prophets in the Old Testament, in fact, use the covenant requirements of faithful love or mercy, hesed in Hebrew, righteousness, tzedakah, and justice, mishvat, as the norm. These were divine attributes. They were God's character. But they were also the very attributes that were to mark the people called by God into covenant relationship. Doing the just deed required being in right relationship with God and others and learning to extend mercy to those in need. So fixing scales in the marketplace, manipulating the legal system to one's benefit, worshiping false gods, these were the sins that violated God's covenant with his people, and these were the sins that the prophets spoke of bluntly and with force. The obvious message is that obedience and adherence to the covenant leads to a judgment of salvation, while disobedience and rejection of the covenant leads to a judgment that will result in misery. There's ample evidence in Israel's early history that at first the prophets acted to support two important institutions in Israel. One was the cult of worship, and they did this by attending to the sacred shrines and later the temple in Jerusalem. And the other was the court of the monarchy, where their role was to support the plans of the king, who was supposed to act in accord with God's will. It was an important role, but rather staid and accommodating to the status quo. That's why the story of Nathan and David from the second book of Samuel is so significant. It might have been the first time to record a conflict between the monarch and one of his prophets. First of all, there had been a breach of morality, one that would in all likelihood become public. King David had not only taken another man's wife and left her pregnant, but when he was unable to trick the warrior husband into sleeping with his wife, the king arranges to have him killed clearing the way for his wife Bathsheba to become part of the royal household. Nathan follows his conscience and goes to the king unsummoned. That in itself could have been dangerous. His conscience binds him to speak for God, and he does so in a very creative way, by appealing to the king's wisdom and by employing a story, a parable about a wealthy sheep herder who stole the lone sheep of his neighbor. 
When confronted with the obvious injustice done to a poor sheep owner, King David demanded that the perpetrator deserve death. And that's when the hand in the cookie jar was trapped in its place. You are the man, was Nathan's clear accusation. But in truth, his words came from a well-formed conscience that followed God's lead. Gone were the days when the court prophets would simply rubber stamp the plans of a king. In fact, the biblical books named for various prophets reflect a whole new consciousness in Israel, a mindfulness that emerged as the monarchy grew in power, but not necessarily in holiness or wisdom. An awareness that coincided with great geopolitical shifts that were taking place in the ancient Mediterranean region. Israel was just a small nation state in the vast empires of the region. They clamored for a king, a monarchy that could hold its own with neighboring powers and at the same time embodies God's leadership among them. But that period of unity and strength lasted only about a hundred years and the kingdom split in two, the northern section retaining the name Israel and the southern section around Jerusalem taking the name Judah. Hittite control of the region gave way to the Assyrians, the empire that would put an end to the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrians were later overtaken by the expanding Babylonian empire, who essentially destroyed Jerusalem and sent its leaders into exile. The period of the exile ended only after another empire, Persia, took over the region and allowed native populations to repatriate and return to their homelands. It was in this tumultuous period from about the 10th to the 6th century BC that Israel and Judah's loyalties were put to the test. Would their political leaders remain loyal to the God of the Sinai Covenant, the God who later promised an everlasting kingdom to David and his household? Or would they plot and connive to form alliances that they hoped would keep them secure? Would they hedge their bets and divide their loyalties? Would their religious leaders preserve worship of Yahweh, or would the temptation be too great to include worship to the gods of the region? Another hedging of bets, right? Would their economic leaders deal justly with the poor as well as the rich, or would they too compromise their civic duties, hoping to buy security and enjoyment? Would the individual hearts of God's covenant people be shaped by God's word, God's law, or would their hearts also be divided? Walter Brueggemann, the respected and prolific scholar of the Old Testament, describes the role of the prophet against this historical backdrop. He, of course, indicates, as do most respected scholars, that biblical prophets were not telling the future as if gazing into a crystal ball. The prophet's role was to speak for God in the midst of his people and the larger world. And he does this by nourishing and evoking an alternative consciousness to the surrounding world. In other words, the prophet acting in God's name does not accept that the world in its current condition is the world as it was intended or as it shall be. Brueggemann suggests two verbs to describe how the prophet can nourish such an alternative consciousness. The prophet's work, he says, is to both criticize and to energize. The critical task is to bring to light those aspects of living that are out of sync with the covenant that governs life with God and life with others, the essence of the commandments given at Sinai and spelled out in the Torah of Israel. 
Criticizing is not an exercise in negativity, but a necessary dismantling of false securities and toppling injustice because these things deteriorate the body from within. The energizing task is the way of replacing what is rotten in the foundation with what is lasting, giving clear opportunities to heal the brokenhearted and right the situations of those who have been wronged, instilling hope for a different future, renewing promises and spreading responsibility throughout the community. Some of the prophetic books are more heavy on the criticizing than the energizing, and I have the prophet Amos in mind when I say that. Some are more balanced in their approach. But one thing I have noticed for certain, in every prophetic book, there are sections that simply sing, verses that lay out the vastness of God's plan of salvation, or passages that pull us into the true lament that God suffers on behalf of his people, or even passages that describe the intimate love that God feels for his people. Listen to some of these samples. This one is from Zephaniah, and it's a word of hope. Do not fear Zion. Do not be discouraged. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty Savior who will rejoice over you with gladness and renew you in his love, who will sing joyfully because of you. Or there's this passage from Hosea, a picture of lament. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The more I called them, the farther they went from me. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, who took them in my arms, but they did not know that I cared for them. From Jeremiah, there's this promise of renewal. See, days are coming, oracle of the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will place my law within them and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people, for I will forgive their iniquity and no longer remember their sin. If prophets are predictors of anything, they are predictors of the consequences of personal and communal sin in the lives of God's people, and predictors of the persistence of God who is willing to correct and admonish and woo and recommit to extending justice and mercy. As you consider this sweeping period of Old Testament literature, remember that it coincides with specific historical periods in ancient history, and that the original meaning of the text would have spoken to the original audience in those historical settings. Of the classical prophets, those who have biblical books bearing their names, only Amos and Hosea were engaged in prophetic ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel. The historical atmosphere was charged with fear of instability as the Assyrian Empire was expanding its territory and taking over small nation states such as Israel. The words of these two prophets were originally intended to outline how Israel's own sinfulness and political corruption had allowed the Assyrians to get a foothold in their nation, a foothold that would soon crush the monarchy there and virtually put an end to their status as a nation. Later generations would add to Amos and Hosea's writings references to the southern kingdom of Judah, seeing that what had happened in one kingdom would soon occur in the other. So even in the ancient world, the Jews familiar with the words of Amos and Hosea would have used those words to apply to their own situation beyond the borders of Israel. And really, the church across the centuries has done the same. We, too, honor the historical setting and that original meaning, but we also recognize that as the inspired Word of God, 
the text has layers of meaning that apply to later generations. The hopes outlined in Hosea as an example, hopes of being betrothed to God forever, show up in various ways in the New Testament where Jesus is described as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. That's really the beauty of scripture. It speaks God's word to an original audience, but it is not restricted to that audience or that singular meaning. We see this also in the writings of the rest of the prophets, those in the southern kingdom of Judah. Joel and Isaiah, who prophesied in the 8th century BC, while Assyria was still the dominant empire of the region. Micah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, whose ministry spanned the latter part of the 8th and most of the 7th centuries BC, just as Babylon overtook Assyria and continued to expand its possessions. And then the later prophets, some of whom wrote in the period of the exile itself, Jeremiah, 2nd and 3rd Isaiah, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Haggai, Malachi, and Joel. This large group spanned the period from the 6th century through the 5th century BC. What I've discovered over the years of studying and praying with scripture is that the tone of the prophets' messages, the particular approach that they take with their words and actions, was in some part determined in response to the situation in which they found themselves. So on the brink of political collapse in the north, Amos and Hosea tried to sound the warning bell to bluntly admonish fellow believers so that perhaps they could reverse what seemed like inevitable demise. Prior to the encroachment of Babylon, more than a hundred years later, the prophets in the area around Jerusalem predicted dire consequences, hoping to change the course of God's people and redirect them to rely more completely on God. Their words and actions were sometimes shocking. But then, when the people were in exile, the prophetic messages tended to be tempered a bit. The damage to their great city and its temple was already done, and now the people needed consolation and hope more than they needed chastisement. It's a model in many ways of how God works, knowing what we most need when we need it. Like a devoted parent who knows when to discipline and when to encourage, God used the prophets to continue to shape a people who would come to know their God and themselves in light of eternal truths rather than passing political or economic systems. Deep in Jewish consciousness was the awareness that God's desire had always been to be with them, to liberate them from bondage, to accompany them through hardships, to expect from them a mutual giving and attention to right living. That deep awareness of God's presence came to be articulated in their hopes for a Messiah, an anointed one from God. Originally, the term Messiah referred to a king who was anointed with oil at the time of his coronation. The kings of Israel served as God's anointed. At least that was the idea. After the division of the monarchy between Israel and Judah, and then their collapse, it was the high priest who was anointed with oil. Eventually, that divine anointing came to be associated with a hoped-for ultimate redeemer, one who would embody the dreams and hopes that the prophets denounced. For some of those who returned from exile, this hoped-for Messiah would be a great religious leader who would restore the heart of Judaism and draw the people to worship. Others came to expect someone who would assume the throne of David, a political leader who would act on God's behalf and secure this land and this people as God's own. And still others hoped for an anointed teacher, 
someone who could restore the place of the Torah in the lives of God's people. The latter chapters of Isaiah, those reflecting the exilic and post-exilic periods, give witness to the power of suffering and brokenness, perhaps as a way of helping God's people discover the redemptive power of suffering, something that came to be associated with messianic expectations as well. Just listen with fresh ears, if you will, to this passage from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased. Upon him I have put my spirit. He shall bring forth justice to the nations. And we might say, how? And it's answered, a bruised reed he shall not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. And hear this from Isaiah chapter 50. I gave my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. My face I did not hide from insults and spitting. The Lord God is my help, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, knowing that I shall not be put to shame. These passages and others came to be known as the suffering servant hymns, and they fueled expectation of a Messiah, an anointed one, that later generations at the time of Jesus and afterward would come to see uniquely fulfilled in the person of Jesus. In fact, we might say that Jesus both fulfilled the expectations of Israel and then exceeded them. And yet there is a sense that not all is fulfilled, and so we wait with eager expectation a return of the Messiah. In the Catholic tradition and in some Protestant denominations, this eager expectation is captured in the season of Advent, in its use of growing light, in the proclamation of the words of the prophets throughout the liturgical cycle, and in the general tone of expectant waiting. Think for a little bit about how often people in the Bible waited on the Lord. Noah, through 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Sarah, who waited for God's promise of an heir to be fulfilled. The Israelites, who were enslaved in Egypt, then wandering in the desert, waited on the Lord to act. Mary, who waited nine months to give birth. Elizabeth, who also waited nine months and a lifetime. The apostles, after the death and resurrection reports, they waited in the upper room. And Paul, who repeatedly waited in prison. I bet most of us associate waiting with being passive, with inactivity, with even wasting time. But the root word for passivity is pati in Latin, and it's the same as the root word for passion. Perhaps our waiting, like that of ancient Israel, should be more infused with passion than passivity. Being goal-oriented and familiar with the lure of the quick and the easy, we might just need Advent to remind us that what we do in the now prepares us for how we will embrace whatever future thing we look forward to. That's at least part of the message of the prophets to the people of their time, and part of the reason we can continue to relate to their words. Our attention to the now, to how we treat our neighbor, to where we find security, how we respond to God in worship, all of that prepares us for what will come in the future. In this panorama of the Old Testament, I hope you've been able to recognize that the plan of salvation is not so much a blueprint that we simply must discover and follow. It's more of an opportunity to participate in the unfolding understanding of how God works within us and among us discovering along the way that God's ultimate plan for us is complete unity with the divine.